Welcome to the Center for Lit Podcast Network. You're listening to How to Eat an Elephant, a little book club for large books. Have you ever cast your eyes across a shelf full of classics and been driven screaming from the room by 500-page monsters with thick spines and important names? Then this is the show for you. We're here to take on these scary books together, because how do you eat an elephant? One bite at a time. Well, hey, friends, welcome back to How to Eat an Elephant, where we elephant eaters and you elephant eaters <laughs> are chewing on Les Mis, Victor Hugo's great novel. I have a question for you before we start, though. Have either of you watched, like, I know that Emily has because she was a part of the story I'm about to tell. But Megan, <laughs> have you ever seen a movie entitled The Revenant? No. Isn't that what Leonardo DiCaprio actually won an Oscar for? Yes. And the story of him making this movie is absolutely crazy. So Emily and I go to watch this film in the theaters. And it's, if I remember correctly, it was released in late fall or early winter even. It was winter. Yeah, it was, yeah. It was winter time. And it's, it, it is the coldest film ever. The whole story centers around a man surviving in the frozen north in the Yukon during the winter time. He gets Jeez. attacked by a bear. He gets swept down a frozen river. I mean, there's all sorts of of cold and we were just freezing just f- absolutely freezing in the theater like we should have brought a blanket and some soup we had like so cold. <laughs> coats like piled on yeah we were us. wearing our coats like blankets i mean it was so cold and it was psychologically cold because you're watching this okay so then I, I read about the production of this movie and it turns out that the cold was a problem on set because they filmed it on location in the frozen north in the yukon oh or somewhere and one of the scenes involves him floating like getting sucked into an icy river and they actually just went ahead and shot the scene oh my goodness and so in costume leo dicaprio is getting swept into a frozen river over and over and over and over again (laughs) for a period of several days so he gets hypothermia of course they had i mean they had to take extreme measures to make sure that he wasn't actually physically endangered by the shooting scenario good grief so the fact that the viewer is affected by how visibly cold everybody is, is not good acting. It's because they darn near froze him to death making the movie. So the reason I go on this long digression is because I feel a little bit that way now, having read this passage for this week. Oh, yeah. The description of little Cosette with, you know, her bare legs sticking out in the cold, sloshing cold water on herself on a half an hour junket away from the village in the snow. So, so cold. Yeah. It's also below freezing in November and the snow just fell on top of the leaves or like the leaves hadn't even come down yet. Mm-hmm. It's just kind of a, this is a rough fall winter. Yeah. It was a rough entry into winter. I think we're firmly there, at least in the Pacific Northwest. Everything is cold. Although you guys were talking before we got on about how you imagine Jean Valjean falling into an icy sea. But like in my head, this is the South of France. And so I was kind of imagining like a blue Happy, happy blue sea. Am I wrong? I think you're wrong. <laughs> well, yeah, I, I think do. you might be wrong. Because there's the long digression about the, the ship against the stormy sea. I mean, it's already like there's inclement weather, there's storm and Incl- conflict in nature. Inclement I just, weather. I don't think like we're, we're you know, sipping Mai Tais on the French Riviera. <laughs> well, so Valjean is back. Wrong. He's back on a prison ship having been recaptured, which I think is interesting because this is a digression. Well, I, I, I suppose it's proper to say the musical omits this whole interlude where he's recaptured and sent back to prison for a while. Sure. Uh, but he's he's sent on to this 
this prison ship, which is really a ship this time, even though the first ones weren't ships, right, Emily? Yeah, we did, so we now, well, he's still just working in the port, but now we've entered the Spanish War, which I thought was an interesting interlude. Now uh, France is at war in, in Spain, and it's weird because they're defending the monarchy, but Hugo says that all revolutions since the French Revolution are an extension of the French Revolution. So he French would, would being a Frenchman. That. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, but then that passage is interesting, too, because he ends by saying it was Bonaparte who said that, which could be an, an ironical statement. Mm. I don't know. I mean, he does seem to be have a lot of national pride as a Frenchman. Yeah, but also, I don't know. It seemed very, I don't know. I don't know what to think about that. But it's so the French are defending monarchy, which he thinks is not characteristic with the nature of France. Mm. I'm not really sure why any of that is important right now, but I'm sure that it is. But anyway, that's why that was a long roundabout way of telling you that, yes, the ships are being used in war warships now. Okay, so he's so he's working in the port and it I love how plot driven this whole passage is And this. I mean, just in case anyone had trouble painting the picture in their minds, we're talking about and and he makes a big deal out of it. Does Hugo uh, the size of the ships? Right. These ships are taller than the American ships and they're taller than the British ships. They're very, very tall. And and so a, a guy that's working on the rigging ends up getting suspended between two of these masts, holding on for dear life, trying not to fall to his death. And so we're talking hundreds of feet up into the air. I mean, a hundred. Well, if the if so, if the ship itself is I mean, it's probably one hundred and fifty feet up in the air. Mm-hmm. That's it's way up there, way, mm-hmm. way up there. What? How far up do you have to be? Bef- when like falling into water is dangerous because he was dangling over water, right? So I don't under- how do the physics of that work? Is it dangerous to fall into water at that height? I'm not sure he was dangling over water. I think he was dangling between two of the masts, which is to say dangling over the deck of the ship. Hmm. Okay. And then in trying to climb down from where he's swung to, Valjean ends up over the water as a ploy. As a cunning ploy. <laughs> as a cunning To ploy. escape his imprisonment. And it's just very convenient that his great act of charity and sacrifice is also a means of escape. I know. I know. Totally. <laughs> so, but, so you've got all these onlookers and no one's moving to help this guy. I mean, they're all just basically watching and waiting for him to fall to his death. And Valjean offers to go up and help. Asks for permission to go up and help. But then removes his shackle with one blow of his hammer. Which makes you think he maybe has been planning his attack or his escape for a while now, right? And I didn't notice this as I was reading because I was into the reading and ignored chapter headings. But the name of this chapter is is in which we see that the shackle must have undergone some preparation to be broken by one hammer blow. Did you guys notice that? I love yes, that. I did. Those chapter that. titles are so it great. It sounds like AA Mill. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, or Friends. Yeah, the one where <laughs> the one where. <laughs> I also think Hugo, while a great novelist, and I'm really enjoying his pacing and his imagery, and he's a great writer and stuff, but he doesn't have a lot of faith in my ability to pick up what he's laying down. There's lots of there's lots of telegraphing yes. some points that could have been subtle, and I don't think he's really interested in subtlety quite so much. Well, maybe that is an element of the romantic genre as well, that there it's actually about hyperbolic statements and strong emotion, eliciting mm. strong emotion, rather than 
subtlety and realism. It's it's a strange combination because he also, as I'm saying this, I'm realizing he also is very attached to the idea of we cited this from this article and these newspapers related this detail to us. There's it's a it's a strange juxtaposition of romantic flights of fancy and symbolism and attention to reality and detail. Mm. There's pathos and saying this was Jean Valjean. It's not that he doesn't think we already know that. It's that the reveal mm-hmm. in itself is exciting. <gasps> yeah. What I wanted to ask you guys what you made of the opening of book two, The Ship Orion, where we've skipped over a lot of time. When we left Jean Valjean, he was in the hospital with Javert, right? And uh, right, right after yeah. the death of Fontaine. Mm-hmm. Well, so, no. When- it, no, it's and not he, that he was in the hospital. It's that he had escaped. Oh, yeah. Uh, oh, with Sister right. Simplice's there lie. The, right. the lie, yep. yep. So he was free, and the, now we check back in, and the first thing we learn about him is he has been retaken. But Hugo's way of telling us that story is indirectly through two newspaper articles, the first one being fairly objective, Yep. and the second one being just a gross series of assumptions about Jean Valjean. So what did you guys make of that? Megan, what do you think? My first take was that the second article, of course, was supposed to elicit compassion for us from from us for Jean Valjean, that he's been, you know, misperceived and all of his good deeds for the city of, what was it, Montfermé? Is that where he lived? Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. All his good deeds for that city have been forgotten and look how unfair society is. That was my first response. But then also it goes one step further and says he was found guilty, but then the king deigned to commute his sentence to a hard labor for life. That combination of the king deigning to give him mercy and the the cruel, brutal punishment that he receives for, again, a pretty small, a pretty small thing, seemingly keeps in the forefront of our mind that this this Lehman's story is a conversation about the law, yeah. about specifically the law in France and how cruel it is to the unfortunate. And he's keeping and that then, in the and, forefront of our mind. Right. And working through the question that he's posed, I mean, he posed it as a statement, but is God more than just? Right. We think he is, and that's what Hugo thinks, but I think he's going to continue working out the implications wherever he can. Mm-hmm. So you're probably right that it draws the the law into sharp focus. Hmm. But yeah, the injustice of it, man. I mean, I, it rankles and it's supposed to. I, I'm firmly, ever more firmly on Valjean's side. And the fact that he pairs it with a more tempered newspaper article does kind of show us multiple perspectives on the issue, maybe, or even mm-hmm. a better, maybe it's an example of a better kind of reporting on facts. Hmm. I don't know. But um, I thought it was interesting that we're told that everything that Monsieur Madeleine or Jean Valjean had feared when he was that horrible chapter where he's just trying to decide whether or not he's going to, to substitute himself for this wrongly convicted prisoner says, look who will suffer if I do that. Yeah. All the people of his, his town, Montreal sur mer were told the prosperity of Montreal sur mer disappeared. Everything he had foreseen in that feverish night of irresolution happened. Mm -hmm. He gone. The soul was gone. Yep. So, the consequence that he feared is made real and tangible to us. The factory shuts down. People have to leave the city. There's a very real effect of his decision, and it's a bad one. He says, even the state noticed that someone had been crushed somewhere. Mm. 
Yeah, because the industry fails, right? So let's talk about the shipbuilding thing because I do think it connects here. There's this long digression from Hugo on how how they build their ships and these ships of war. And it, it basically sets the ship up as this highest accomplishment of man in his order and in his art and all of that. And and yet the ship is out on the middle of the ocean and is this tiny little needle in a haystack, right? And so so we have this thing of great beauty and strength that is still irrelevant in in the face of this mighty, mighty power of the ocean. And I wonder if he's not talking about a man or the impact that a man can have in the face of a society that is as, as unjust as the one that we're mm-hmm. dealing with. Mm-hmm. Ooh, it's like important that. for his midnight, his midnight indecision or whatever they called it just now, that the things he's thinking be true. It is both true that he can't let another man, you know, be punished for his own offenses and true that if he leaves, this society will swallow up all the good that he has done. Yeah. And it's this, it's this towering accomplishment on a soul level that he has made in doing the right thing, despite the the fact that all the things he fears are true um maybe he's the ship on the broad ocean of of society what do you guys think of that i love that i love that idea of strength and weakness being pitted together i like it as a commentary on society but i also see him having a little religious conversation in that he names the ship the orion which is a constellation that typically represents some kind of christ figure right a hero yeah a hero in the sky, constellation-wise. He names the ship the Orion. And then he says about it that all of its might and majesty, it floats, it rains. But like Ian said, it's overwhelmed by or engulfed by a superior might and majesty in the ocean. He says, whenever immense strength is put forth only to end in immense weakness, it makes men meditate. And as I was reading that, I thought about the story of Jesus and how he is immensity brought down into a weak frame. Mm. And that is mm-hmm. what makes men meditate. It's the thing that catches your attention. It's this humility, even in the combination of strength and weakness. And I think what we see of Valjean's character further in our reading for today, he is becoming a Christ figure in a lot of ways. So that image of the ship, the Orion, seems to, I don't know, correlate with where our passage is going next. Mm. Yeah, yeah, I think so too. So from the the daring escape in which he saves another life and is presumed dead, having fallen into the water and all of that, from there we jump directly into the misery that is Cosette's first eight years of life living with the Thenardiers. Talk to me about this, you guys. What about the characterizations we get of Madame and Monsieur Thenardier? <laughs> I think it's so interesting that Hugo is self-consciously even though it's absolutely miserable and cruel, there is an element of humor to it. <laughs> I, I don't know. I don't know why. I, I wonder why he chooses to do that. Uh, the fact that he calls Madame Thenardier the Thenardiers is absolutely <laughs> hilarious <It's so> funny. <laughs> and very like Dickensian almost. Oh, I thought um, that too. This is very yeah, Dickensian. It's very Dickensian. Right down to the detail about how when her mouth is closed, one of her teeth protrudes from between yeah. her lips. <laughs> yes. <laughs> passage i like the way he starts it though he calls the chapters called two portraits filled in and mm-hmm. he really is building a portrait he says we've looked at them profile but now it's time to look at them from all sides and then he characterizes them in dickensian fashion and provides us with two portraits he says of the Thenardiers, apart from the novels she had read which at times produced odd glimpses of the affected lady under the ogress it would <laughs> never have occurred to anyone to say 
that's a woman. This Tenardius <laughs> was a cross between a whore and a fishwife. <laughs> well, he's not pulling any punches, is he? He sure isn't. It is brutal. Um, I, I'm not sure I read this correctly, but does she have a beard? He said oh, literally yeah. she has a beard. He said she has How a beard. Can that he be? says she can crack nuts with her fist. I mean, she's a monster. <laughs> that is unbelievable. And she he makes this whole comparison about how she submits herself to mm. Monsieur Tenardier and he calls it the material submitting to the spirit. And I thought, let's see, the way he says it is super interesting. It's like there's something um Oh, yeah, 377. It was uh, viewed from its dwarfed and grotesque side, the great universal fact, the homage of matter to spirit. For some deformities have their origin in the very depths of eternal beauty. Mm. So there's something true and beautiful about them at their core that's perverted in some way. <laughs> well, yeah, and about about Tenardier uh, himself... He talks about how that his his character could have gone either way under yeah. different sets of influences. Right? I have that passage pulled up too. Because he's intelligent and he's a powerful personality and he's really good at reading people and all of the raw materials of a of a good man and a capable leader are present in him and they've just been twisted and perverted by his lifestyle. And so he's he's evil instead. Hmm. Yeah, that's a 419. He had all that is necessary to make. We do not say to be what passes for an honest tradesman, a good citizen. Uh, but but he also had the monster hidden within. So my question is, if and when we're thinking about this as like a commentary on society, like where do they fit? Are they the exception that proves, that complicates the issue so that it's not a simplistic commentary on like the oppressed class? Like here they are. They're suffering, but he doesn't draw a compassionate picture of them hardly at all as a suffering class. Instead, they're, it's made them cruel. Mm -hmm. But I do still hear that conversation, that romantic conversation going on, that your circumstance is what twists and deforms you. Tenardier had all of the potential to be a good version of himself, but because of oppression and poverty and circumstance, he became a villain instead. If he had been picked up and moved to an affluent neighborhood where he'd been given opportunities, he would have become something good. It sounds like like a romantic argument, like like Frankenstein. Mm. You know, yeah. interesting. Some, yeah. A little bit of the the noble savage idea. Because mm -hmm. I would I was gonna say, well, then it must be just truly miraculous that we have figures like Jean Valjean or Cosette who are, who remain good in spite of their circumstances. But the truth is, no, like there is, it's not just that they're miraculously saved spiritually, but they are literally plucked from poverty and placed into wealth. Like there's a scene when Cosette is looking into her pocket and seeing the Napoleon that Jean Valjean leaves in her shoe. And she looks at it as though it were a star mm -hmm. that he really is tying material wealth with spiritual health in a way. Mm. Hmm. Which is interesting. That is interesting. I also think that it's it isn't true that Valjean ha is exempt from any of that. I mean, he his time in prison made him brutish and evil first. Deformed him utterly. Yeah. Yeah. Before he was then supernaturally delivered. But I also can see the connection. It, maybe he's using money as an image, but he's connecting generosity to the poor with the love of God. Yeah. So right. the, the material and the spiritual are definitely knit together. Yeah, and, and, and there's spreading that wealth. You kind of spread the the gospel as well in certainly. an experiential way. Yeah, there is a um, pretty strong biblical argument for such a position, yeah. <laughs> right? Mm -hmm. Charity is, and we, and we get it from the bishop. 
Mostly. I mean, so then, I mean, I'm sorry. I'm going to give a brief spoiler here as a thought, but then I will be interested to track the growth of the Tenardier children, Eponine and Azalma or whatever her name is. Mm -hmm. Um, And the little boy who we all know who he is, but like we do. I don't know who he is. Gavrash. It's Gavrash. I didn't know that. (laughs) Mind Uh, blown. (laughs) But, uh, I, that's interesting because obviously Eponine is going to have, I don't know, that's like the conversation that we're having right now. Like we should keep that in mind because I wonder if that same romantic impulse, your circumstances make you who you are is true of the Tenardier children. Hmm. Well, as, as wonderful and hilarious in places and awful in others as the caricatures are, it contributes so far as the plot is concerned to painting little Cosette's plight in pretty stark terms. It is very difficult to read about the things that are done to this little eight-year-old girl. And it has its impact on her as well, right? To the, It plays very nicely with the argument we've just been making about romanticism. He is at pains to tell us that, she, that her treatment has made her ugly, mm-hmm. I think is the word he, he uses. He does right? love to uh, say yes. this kid is ugly. It's very mean how much he She's says like it. like our Maria. <laughs> yeah, Exactly. For those of you who don't who don't know, in War and Peace, there's also a character who Tolstoy is determined to tell us is ugly. It's the first thing he tells us about her in every scene. I don't imagine that Cosette will remain this way, right? She she reflects her circumstances at this point. Well, as soon as she's no longer being bruised by a millstone and lacerated with pinchers, I think she'll be much better. <laughs> oh my goodness. The descriptions are over the top, man. Yep. Yeah. Oh man. But this whole section, it's very plot heavy, but it's just so, so beautiful and very symbolic. The line, while she looks at the doll mm. in the toy stall, she says, she was saying to herself that one must be a queen or at least a princess to have a thing like that. It's just straight up fairy tale that we have right here. Yeah. This is the Cinderella story. (laughs) Yeah. And the merchant walking back and forth behind the stall seemed like an eternal father. Yep. Yeah. Just setting it up so beautifully. It's Christmas day Mm -hmm. that all of this happens. Yeah. I was completely taken in. It was beautiful. I I love this whole, this whole section taking a full step back from it though. All every single tiny detail is on the nose. I yes, mean, of course. Absolutely on the nose. <laughs> Again, not a paragon of subtlety in the way he describes this stuff, but I don't know that it's necessary. I mean, I think we are supposed to be, we're supposed to be affronted by the injustice of the scenario. Mm-hmm. And um, that certainly works when they hand her a bucket and send her out in the dark, in the freezing cold with no coat to walk half an hour to a spring and try and carry a bucket full of water that's as big as her all the way back. Mm-hmm. Megan, I wondered if this reminded you of anything on page 385. She's traveling to get her water. Uh, yeah, you know, <laughs> another symbol, right? She's looking for for the spring, the spring of water to quench thirst. And it says Jupiter was setting. Startled, oh, yeah. the child looked at that great star, which she did not know and which made her afraid. The planet, in fact, was at that moment very near the horizon and was crossing a dense layer of mist that gave it a horrible red glow. The mist, mournfully lurid, magnified the star. It seemed a luminous wound. Mm. Well, I don't know if I'm if I'm remembering what you're remembering, but I it recalls the planet Narnia to me. It makes oh, me think of all of the lunar imagery in C.S. Lewis's stories. That is really interesting. I wonder if Jupiter is significant in some way. I mean, he is also the father, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and he's 
coming close and magnifying a star, kind of like the star of Bethlehem idea. Yeah, I love that. It just, it reminded me of the scene in War and Peace when Pierre looks up and the comet is piercing the heavens, that there's the heaven, God is coming close. Yeah. Divinity coming down to earth. It's a wound, right? A tear in the, Mm. in the space between heaven and earth. Yeah. I think that constellation imagery is shot throughout the passage that we, that we chose for today. So I think that would make a lot of sense for Orion and Jupiter both to be present, you know? She's afraid of that, but she's not afraid when a man comes out of the woods and grabs her bucket. <laughs> well, it could be the way that it's set up, though. On page 387, we get this, I mean, it's just a riveting and wrenching picture of her trying to get the bucket full of water out of the stream and then lug it along through the woods. And she's getting colder and colder and she's despairing. And the line goes, the poor little despairing thing could not help crying, oh my God, oh God. At that moment, she suddenly felt that the weight of the bucket was gone. A hand, which seemed enormous to her, had just caught the handle and was carrying it easily. Oh man, just makes me cry. cry. Goodness gracious. it, It gets better from there as they interact with each other. But this is, of course, Jean Valjean stepping in and carrying her burden. But I love the way that it's juxtaposed with her despair in crying out to God, to this mm. this eternal father that's referenced again at the top of that page, yeah. uh, who she saw earlier with, you know, all of heaven before him in the shape of that doll. And he's come down close and lifted her burden. I just think it's, there is a lot to be said for a romantic. Yes, you know? that is true. Sometimes simplicity really is the mm-hmm. best medicine. Well, and I, and, and, <laughs> and he, also, yeah. um, explicitness. I mean, here he says exactly what he means and what it represents and it hits your spirit, you know? It really does. And I think it wouldn't have quite as hard unless his description of the dark in the forest and Mm -hmm. what it does to the human imagination. And he describes what it does to any human and then says, now imagine it for a child, right? Mm -hmm. It's so bleak and it's so dark. And I think it's really important that that is where God intervenes. Mm -hmm. That seems to me to be a little microcosmic expression of the whole novel's heft. Oh man. I just can't help it too. At the top of this page, he references her mother, which at, at, when, as I was reading it, I was like, well, that's a little maudlin and her dead <laughs> mother's watching her and wringing her hands in heaven. But actually as I'm reading it again, it reminds me of the scene where Fontaine is falling deeper and deeper into depravity. Yeah. And he says, there's just a brief line about no one seeing the depravity of, mm-hmm. of a lost soul, except God. There's only yeah. one who's near a lost soul in the the darkest moment, in the very mm. blackest darkness. Only God is there. And here, little Cosette cries out to God, and suddenly she turns and looks, and there's a dark form, straight and erect, walking beside her in the darkness. And I just think there's no way to miss Jean Valjean being a character who represents a salvific creator. You know, like, I just think this is profound. Oh, that doesn't make you weep a little bit. You're not paying attention. <laughs> I do. It, this is better. He sets it up in a more palatable way for her not to be afraid of Jean Valjean, yes. as opposed to <laughs> the my musical. favorite scene in the musical <laughs> where a man comes out of the woods and to a little girl and says, tell me where you live. <laughs> Don't run. Tell me where you live. <laughs> what is your social security number? <laughs> She's like, okay. <laughs> but I do, but there it's, it, Hugo's not unaware of that. He knows that that is a that that's a weird moment that he's going to try and sell to his audience. And I think it it the spirituality of the moment is yeah, what saves it. Absolutely, because mm-hmm. he says, 
multiple times as though to reassure us, the reader, Cosette wasn't afraid. Mm-hmm. She wasn't afraid. She knew that in something in her spirit knows that provision and protection has just dropped into her life. And watching that unfold when they get back to the inn and he starts doing what he can immediately mm-hmm. is so beautiful. I just, I identify with the little girl in that scene, wondering yeah. if it's going to continue. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've just been blessed, but that's not how this works. Mm-hmm. So when will reality set back in and when will misery come back? And it just mm-hmm. doesn't. So oh, great. So good. I like what you said that the thing that saves this scene, keeps it from being creepy in any way, is the spirituality in it. I think that Hugo does a great job of maintaining that, even as his characters begin to dialogue with one another. In the way that Valjean speaks to her, he speaks to her like a holy father almost. Like his tone towards Cosette is much like what's his name? The bishop. The, the priest guy or the bishop at the beginning of our story was to mm. Valjean. And what he says is, my child, that's very heavy for you. Let me carry it for you. It's It continues the <laughs> the spiritual conversation rather yeah. than leaving us too quickly into the, the social realm. Yeah. We can't talk about this scene while I have a microphone. I, I know. <laughs> I'm just going to slobber my way through it. It is yet another proof of the stakes in the story, how quickly the Tenardius and her husband and ruler figure out that this whole thing is can be a giant money grab. A money grab. She's an object in the truest sense of the word. And it's every bit as oily as as the uh as the musical has it. That's <laughs> the, for sure. All I could hear was Master of the House in the background. Yep. Charge yeah. him for looking in the mirror twice. He does <laughs> yep. actually say that. <laughs> it actually does. They give him his bill and I just heard the music in my head as I read through the bill. As you read through the bill. <laughs> There's a couple, there's some things that I'm- Extra for the lice. (laughs) Two percent for looking in the mirror twice. (laughs) Oh my goodness. A musical's really, really good for some stuff. And I think these characters are one of the things it's good for. (laughs) There is, maybe that is the beauty of them being comic figures is that they lose. And we know they're going to lose from the very beginning. Mm -hmm. They don't have any leg to stand on in the face of at least- this this salvific figure mm-hmm. yeah yeah it was pretty pretty satisfying when Tenardier follows him they've already done the deal and he and Cosette have escaped and Tenardier follows him and tries to say I actually can't I can't let her go without you know some proof of who you are and mm-hmm. I could just hear Hugo rubbing his hands together and saying ha I got you you readers you thought it was creepy when he came up from the woods and now the bad guy thinks it's creepy too <laughs> that whole thing was pretty funny <laughs> But the the moment where Valjean basically not only fulfills all the requirements, but also knows exactly who he's talking to and just has a strength of character and mm-hmm. and real manhood that is intimidating by its nature yeah. and scares Sinardier off again. I was grateful, though. I actually, Hugo had me in the palm of his hand because I was afraid when Sinardier went after him into the woods, given that his response to the two, the two schemers has been to just generously give all of his money. And I thought, this guy has no street smarts. I mean, he can't possibly be a convict. He doesn't know anything about human nature. You're being taken advantage of. I wanted him to fight back, you know? And I thought, oh no, Tenardier's going after him into the woods. I don't remember this part. I have no idea what's going to (laughs) happen. He's going to find his stash and they're going to start out life destitute. Yes. But instead, he has, he's an accountant. He used to run a successful business. And not only that, but he knows exactly what Fontaine owes these people and has already paid far more than necessary. Mm-hmm. 
And he's he's a very powerful individual. And so he cows yeah. the other guy, which also brought me comfort. Yes, love that. Love the whole thing. There's also something kind of grave and and awe-inspiring in the symbolic significance of the fact that Jean Valjean doesn't just save Cosette. He actually clears Thenardier's debts in full. Mm. Like he he's been so worried about those debts and he just can't he can't even see it. Yeah. Well, I don't know what more there is to say about that. I mean, that was what a wonderful, what a wonderful passage. I just enjoyed it so much. And and he has worked us up into such a fervor over the injustices and the plight of our characters that to see some real justice, justice tempered with hmm. mercy and infused with grace, was just powerful, powerful stuff. Yeah, it's kind of the first real moment of redemption we've had since Jean Valjean's encounter with the bishop. Yeah. And the fact that this is Christmas Day, I think, sets the scene for a, a new period of new life for mm-hmm. our characters. There's also just something about it being Valjean. We've been with him. He's the character we know best up to mm-hmm. this point. And in no way do we take it for granted that he is behaving in this way. We've seen him at his worst. And here he is with the opportunity to basically act out redemption for another character. And I just, he acts overwhelmed and I feel overwhelmed for him, overwhelmed Mm -hmm. with joy at the opportunity that he has to love somebody. Yeah. When Cosette turns and looks at him, the line goes something like she was no longer alone. Somebody was there Mm -hmm. and she felt that she were near God. I just mm-hmm. think probably Valjean feels the same way. We're not in his head in that moment, right. but he acts as if her presence is the same to him. Yep. I, just, I think you're right. I, I hear again the musical on the back of my mind. To love <laughs> another person is to see the face of God, you know? How do you hit a high note when you're almost crying? I don't know how you I do that. Know. It's just beautiful. It's so beautiful. The fact that it's a little girl is way more powerful than even mm-hmm. if it was a little boy. Oh, yeah. You know? Yeah. Yeah, I agree with this rough life that he's had and hardly any human intimate human contact. Yes. Mm-hmm. Wasn't well, the last scene we get of them, she's tired and he swings her up into his arms and she falls yeah. asleep on his shoulder. It just, yeah. I just cry and cry. I just cry the whole time. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Oh my goodness. Well, I'm really excited to see where the story goes from here. Do either of the two of you have a parting thought? Got to come with tissues next time. Yeah. I'm seriously. I mean, I didn't know this was going to be a weeper, but here we are. Well, thank you listeners for weeping along with us through this beautiful passage. I'm sure the dark will get darker before the end, but I think we've been given a pretty beautiful glimpse of what Hugo is up to. So thanks for coming and and we'll see you next time on Mm. How to Eat an Elephant. Bon appetit. Bon appetit. Want to follow along with our reading? You can find a link to the schedule in the show notes for this episode. How to Eat an Elephant is a part of the Center for Lit podcast network. Visit our website at www.centerforlit.com to find our other literary shows, resources, and our membership program, The Pelican Society, where you can get access to a variety of live discussion groups. You can also find us on most social media channels. Thanks for tuning in. Until next time, happy reading. Happy reading.